The four A's is dedicated to supporting agencies and creative companies through leadership and community for our industry. We're passionate supporters of the work small agencies do across America and the role of the Small Agency Planner Parlay in helping strategists get fueled on creativity, commerce, and culture, all moving strategy and the industry forward. For more information on the many benefits of being a 4A's member, try aaaa.org to find out how our industry authority can be there for you. And now, the Planner Parlay. Welcome to Planner Parlay, the show where we come together under a flag of truce to talk about small agency planning. This week, our panel dug into what it means to be a comms planner. They dissected the role, its challenges, and shared tips to avoid the most common pitfalls, as well as exploring trends and insights into the way comms planning is changing today. Join our guests, Eric Pakura from Dirt Worldwide, Melissa Walker, a seasoned veteran of the discipline, and of course, John Roberts, CSO of Truth Collective in Rochester, New York, as they dig into the changing world of comms planning. Pull up a chair and listen in. Communications planning, connections, engagement, context planning, the list goes on. We all know it's important, but just what is it? And what's your favorite expression or name for it? Eric. I think it's really simple, actually, and I suspect that it has a lot more to do with just plain old marketing strategy. You have business problems that you need to solve. You need to talk to a certain group of people in order to solve them. You need to get them to change their behavior in a certain way. How are you going to do it? That's what it is, I think, in, in a nutshell. And then in answering that, you need to use certain channels in certain ways at certain times in certain moments. And putting some sort of rigor behind that and making some sense of that is the job of connections planning or communications planning or whatever the heck you call it. I've sort of moved away from calling it any of those. Just call it strategy. You know, how are we going to answer your business problems? through marketing communications and try not to call it anything. Because as soon as you call it something, then somebody has a different conception of what it is. And so many different people in different disciplines doing different things have co-opted all of those names that you just gave it. So it's sort of problematic to give it any of those names, I think. That's interesting. I want to come back to that in a minute. But first, Melissa, how would you answer that question? I agree. Um, I agree on the name. And, you know, for so many years, this was this uh, discipline that nobody really understood. And so we would try and slap a name on it, like engagement and connection. And I have found exactly what Eric just said, that as soon as you slap one of those names on it, people have a very uh, defined definition then of what you do. So engagement has tend to be, um, you would think of that as at a creative agency, connections is sort of now owned by media agencies. I generally call it communications planning because it is just the, the wide berth of all communications and um, how clients are looking at the full spectrum of what they're putting out into the market. It's a personal point of ire, I guess, uh, what Melissa just said, that media planning agencies, most of whom are predominantly focused on paid media, are calling themselves connections planners, when in my mind, a connections planner is, as Melissa just said, a little bit of everything, all channels, not just paid channels. So it's personally galling to me that media companies have sort of co-opted the term. So the, the tricky part for me then would be, how would we explain your role when you, for example, are working with someone like me, okay? I'm a brand strategist, a generalist, 
but really understanding the role of brand and customer. How do you feel it best works when you're working with other planners or strategists? You know, I really look at it as one piece of the pie. And so I, you know, we can hone in on that one piece. So if you're talking about paid advertising, but not, you know, not necessarily, John, because I know that you and Truth do a lot of content pieces, you do a lot of social, and those are all different pieces of the pie. So as a as a discipline of, of what Eric and I and, and people like us are trying to do, we're trying to look at the pie as a whole and then hone in on individual pieces of that pie and really figure out how that specific piece is going to do its, its job best. And how about you, Eric? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I can't beat that as a definition, but maybe a metaphor is one of a sports team have you ever seen a bunch of six-year-olds play soccer? Mm-hmm. Foot, football for you, John. Soccer. Thank you. bunch of six-year-olds are out there. They're on the field. The ball goes over into one corner, and every single kid on both sides of the ball just swarm after that ball. And the ball goes over here, and every, all the kids, even the goalies, are out there trucking after the ball. And that's kind of – if you don't do the due diligence that Melissa is talking about, if you don't sort of carve out the specific roles that each specific channel is meant to play that are separate and distinct from each other – then you end up playing soccer like a bunch of six-year-olds. If you play soccer like grown-ups, certain channels play offense, certain play defense, certain certain of them aren't applicable against this business problem today on this field. And and others are just bit players, some are stars. And so like that as a metaphor works well for me. So just can we extend that metaphor? Into, it's interesting that you apply the metaphor to the role of channel, which is a really smart way of thinking about it. Could we also apply that metaphor to the role of strategist and a team together? So, Melissa, when you and I work together or when you work with other strategists, that understanding our strengths, we're all on the same team, but we have slightly different strengths or different focus. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So how would we apply it? When I think of this as, you know, planner parlay is uh, for all strategists, but with, with the definite focus for us in terms of the small agency world, strategists within small agencies, where we are limited, as we all know, with our resources. How can we take, in your mind, the, the skills of, of people like yourselves and understand the role of communications? How can small agencies apply it in their world with more limited resources, perhaps? But isn't that a blessing? more than it is a curse. Tell me more. If you're at a big agency, odds are you are built around the production of a a certain thing. PR, say, branded video, say, social content, direct response or CRM work, experiential work, whatever it happens to be. The bigger you are, the more likely you are to have become dependent on the production of that thing. That's where the majority of your profit is made in the production part of it. And you have a lot of specialists who are really good at making things happen in that channel specifically. When you're at a small agency, you're not encumbered as much by the production of one thing or the other. That, And because the business structure that you sit in isn't beholden to the production of that thing, you're not forced sort of down that road for your client. And you're free, freer, I think, to think more broadly as a result. Love it. And certainly from our perspective, what we tend to see is, you know, the briefs don't come as, you know, as the narrow swim lane that you've just talked about, Eric. We don't get a brief saying this is an advertising brief or this is a 
social brief. We get clients that have a business problem that we've got to try and figure out how to help solve. Well, ideally, ideally. You mean that's not the reality? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's not at all. It's, it, it runs the gamut. In an ideal world, in, uh, in, in sometimes it, with some clients, you get exactly that brief. Here's a business problem. Help me solve it through marketing. And other times, I'd argue more often, you get a, I need a blank, make one for me. Maybe truth um, is that beautiful Eden where all you get is marketing, uh, business problems to solve through marketing. I, I, I hope. I wish that for you. I wouldn't call us Eden, but I know what you mean. Let's come back to what we were talking about earlier. How can communications planning and specialists like yourselves help clients and agencies with the paid media component? Paid media, both in terms of the channels, but also the agency. Yeah, so I think that our job often is helping paid media look outside of itself a little bit because you can tend to get so lost in data and um, you know click-through rates and reach and frequency and impressions that you forget to think about how every touch point is sort of affecting what you're doing. So I think our job is to lift it up a little bit and realize that, you know, a TV spot or a content partnership um, isn't, that's not the whole brand story. And so how does that fit in with the other pieces and what's the connection back to the brand and what's the user experience like for consumers and, and really pushing them to think more outside of the box and not get lost in the day-to-day -day numbers. Got it. So it's also helpful, the conversations we have here as well, Melissa, is also thinking about what I love about the role of communication planning that we're talking about. I use that as the title. Forgive me, Eric. But it also means that we're thinking about it from customer out. We're not thinking about it from channel first. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's right. How about you, Eric? And I... I I think the the reality is paid media occupies an outsized portion of our attention because, as marketers anyway, because we spend more of our budget on paid media. More money goes there, and it, it's fairly intricate to get right, and therefore, you know, you you want to pay attention to the place where most of your money goes. The, the, and, and that's all well and good. The issue I have with paid media is assuming that that's going to be the right answer for any given problem. I think a lot of times we sort of rush past whether paid media is good or not and go straight to, okay, how are we going to do paid media? Not asking whether, but how, which is yeah. a mistake. Really good point. Good point. So... When you think about this crazy world we all live in today, and actually both of you haven't come from, you know, as we talked about earlier, the, the world of, of Naked, the, the learning, the training, and, and the voice that Naked had. What's changed for you in the work that you do? Sadly, not too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that the the most shocking thing to me in this discipline is how little things have changed. Now, certainly, you know, our day-to-day -day looks different now than it did 10 years ago. 
but as far as brands and how they are engaging with human beings, the same silos that were siloed 10 years ago, I find are still, you know, it's still the same silos that we're living in day to day. Do you find that also, Eric? It's so true. <laughs> so how can we change that? When you think about this notion of parlay, of, of what do we believe is true today and what can any of us do to change that? What are a couple of things that you would recommend that all of us strategists could do to help change? Well, I don't think it's rocket science. I think it's as simple as doing the right things in the right order. Asking yourself whether a, promoting a post on Insta is the right thing to do before you go and promote posts on Insta. And if it is the right thing, then how's the consumer going to, to interact with it and see it? Like those are really simple questions. They're process questions, you know, do the right things in the right order. Here's a story. Um, we were uh, in my previous job. Uh, a, a big agency was readying a Super Bowl spot for uh, the launch of a new subline of products. This is a massive CPG company. And they're getting their Super Bowl spot ready. And they're, uh, they're you know, it's November, December before the Super Bowl in February. And they show the spot very proudly, a rough of the spot very proudly to all the rest of the agencies, including the shopper agency, and, and say, everybody needs to get behind this campaign, this idea, everything, everywhere needs to have this new tagline and whatever else. And the shopper agency says, wait, wait a second, Walmart set their shelves nine months ago. There's no way physically to put a new campaign in Walmart now. It's, it's, it, it's just doing the right things in the right order, understanding the production timelines, understanding the reality of doing things in the world. It's, it's really simple stuff, but nobody bothered to like stop and think about it. And I feel as though, just adding to that, there's the functional process you've talked about, which is absolutely right. There's also the process of making sure we're really clear what our goals are before we leap into the execution. Are you finding you're having the right level of goal setting and goal discussions with clients? Or Because I find quite often, frankly, we play catch up. How is it with you? Play catch up how? What does that mean? Playing catch up in terms of the goals were set a while ago and now we're having, we have uh, the speed to actually try and meet those goals. Or the other way around, which is actually we've agreed a strategy moving forward and now someone's introducing new goals. So the two are not aligned. I think it depends on what, what the client is. I work on a lot of financial services clients and so that's a really long tail uh, buying cycle. And so clients like a financial services client, their goals tend to be a little bit more marketing driven, which is, which is helpful. Things like growing awareness or um, metrics that, that are easily quantifiable with marketing. Other clients like a travel client is a little bit harder. If you're pushing sales, it's harder to look for that big picture if they're expecting paid media just to drive quick sales. So I think it just depends on the client category and how sophisticated they are with what marketing can and can't do. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it also depends on the success of usually a strategist sort of pushing at the point where you're negotiating a scope of work or a project plan with any given client, sort of pushing and making sure that that scope of work is written properly and has the right inputs and that you've made the those decisions, exactly what you're talking about, at the upfront part. Um, I, I found in my, in my history, at least, that project plans that were written by the account people were really efficient and got things done. And, you know, you had the right people scoped at the, you know, at the right times, that sort of stuff, except for the parts that you're talking about. They don't always leave the right amount of time or scope the right amount of people for the strategist to do their job and to sort of pick at the, the questions that you're talking about, John. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting to me, Eric, on that would be this connection from, from goal to measurement. Okay, let's make sure in our future, Eden, that we're all really, really clear about what the goals are we've agreed, okay, in the time frame and, and steps forward, but what the goals are, what we're trying to achieve before we start leaping into a timing or creative execution like your story um, or, um, or the process itself. When you think about the most successful application of understanding the role of all channels and the part they play. Should there be a singular owner of the role of measurement or a champion of measurement? Uh, measurement of what, I guess, is the question. Good question. Measurement of how we are doing to achieve ultimately achieve our goals. So I think owning the business goal, success of the business goal, is one thing, understanding the success of marketing's impact on a consumer and consumer behavior is another thing. And then a third thing is all the tactical crap that you kind of have to measure, but doesn't the, the trick is understanding its impact on the previous two things. And how well connected are those three things that you've just described? Well, today? It, 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 I think we tend to measure the things we can measure in isolation of whether the marketing is having consumer behavioral impact or whether the marketing is having an effect on the business. Um, and I think work needs to be done at the beginning to sort of look at the connections between those and at least, at, if nothing else, put a stake in the ground on hypotheses about how they are connected that you can prove or disprove on down the line. And you can look for correlations on down the line if you have those hypotheses set out from the start. But in terms of whose responsibility is it, any given agency doing work in a given channel should be responsible for measurement of work done in that channel. And I think it's either um, we can talk about whether there should be AORs or lead agencies in an IAT mm -hmm. or not, but it should either be the client the brand manager, or it should be that lead agency in the integrated agency team. Makes sense to me. How about you, Melissa? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and I agree. A lovely agree fest, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, well, we said it in the beginning that we do have a very similar <laughs> philosophy on, um, but, you know, I think that, I mean, exactly like Eric just said, it's, it's measuring each of those individual channels and then laddering them all up to a business goal that should be owned both by the client or on the brand side. 
and by each of those individual agencies. So when you think about, we've talked about the role of agencies generally and strategists generally within this. What about the role of client? What would you say, let's come back to what we were talking earlier about uh, the state of uh, communications planning now versus when you guys began and the thought of, of, of the role of Naked as an example for that. What do you think is the biggest client barrier to having our nirvana of communications planning? Silos. Yeah, I mean, it's just really hard when there's a, especially at a large organization, you know, CPGs or, or even some of the bigger financial institutions, when there is one client responsible for paid media, a different client responsible for corporate communications, you know, PR, everything, everything is very siloed. And so that makes it hard for number one, to have a, a point of contact as the, as the comm strategist or as the person who is supposed to be looking across platform to have a point of contact of somebody who has their eyes on all of that. It just, it still tends not to happen. Younger companies, I find that it happens more and more. Um, but I think that's the biggest hurdle for for me 100% silos are, are are a pain the other the other killer is everybody seems to have more and more responsibilities clients especially seem to be stacked up with meetings from 8:30 in the morning till 6 o'clock at night and the work that we're talking about requires lateral thinking and imagination and creativity and there often just isn't time in the day to do it so true right no matter which side of the fence we sit on client or, or agency side and, and we're built you know on the agency side we're built to to deliver some of that imagination and creativity and lateral thinking that uh, that our clients don't have the time for when they're in one meeting to the next so let me segue smoothly from that to one of the challenges we know within small agencies uh, is is talent finding and nurturing talent what would you describe or how would you describe the ideal communication planner the the person the person doing the job you mean yes the ideal communications planner i think uh, systems thinkers people who think in 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 systems in how little pieces join together into a bigger cohesive experience or system are very good at that. The struggle I'm having is there's the need to put things in boxes, so to speak, to look for connections between things, to understand the 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 gestalt of it, the, the sort of bigger picture of it. And at the same time, the best ones have creativity within those boxes. So so there's a there's a bit of a push and pull. There's sort of a, a, a mismatch and often some of the best results happen when you have the systems thinker interacting with the creative teams, sort of pushing and pulling. So you have both of those things represented. And then the systems thinks are think, talking about, well, here's consumer behavior at this time and place. Here's what we know is going on with them. Here's what their needs are. Here's how they're behaving. Here's how we want the behavior to change to start applying the creative idea into that specific time and place. Um, I, I think benefits from having lots of different points of view banging on it together. I also think that 
you know, I, I used to call myself a frustrated media planner, which is only to say that my very first job was at a standalone and independent media agency. And I was just dying to break out of there. I just wanted to knock the walls down and find out what, you know, what else could I touch and what else could I, could I help to manage. And so that type of a person that really wants to look outside of their own discipline, I think, and um, have, have that awareness of a bigger picture. I, I had this theory for a long time that I used to ask um, people when they were interviewing to be a comms planner if they had any musical background. Huh. So someone who has been um, in a band or in a theater production or any type of a musical background, they tend to be able to understand their part and what their part means, but also have that sort of spatial awareness of a lot of little things coming together to create something. That's really interesting. And in fact, that was mentioned in one of the other podcasts we've done about finding talent generally in terms of strategists, that, that looking for musicians because they seem to have both of the, that, that systems thinking that you, you talk about so well, Eric, in terms of how, how everything comes together um, and attention to detail on the role of music, as well as some of that freedom to be inventive and express themselves. I, I also have a pretty a strong opinion that I actually think Eric would disagree with um, when it comes to comms planners, because I think that we as a discipline need to have some media training under our belt. I think that that understanding and that, um, that rigor of doing a down and dirty media plan and understanding um, what an impression is and what reach and frequency mean, I think that that's really important to the whole discipline of comms planning. I, I don't. I don't entirely disagree. The the part where um, where I will push back is I think that's true of all channels. I think a good comms planner has a little bit of knowledge of paid media and shopper and experiential and any other any other sort of potential route that marketing could take. And I suspect that the better ones have some overlap with brand planners because the like understanding all of that actually is about understanding consumers it's about understanding behavior within the context of a of a given moment um and then sort of the channels and and ways to use those channels fall out of that so there you need to be able to come to some sort of insight about a consumer and i think that's where many comms plans that i've seen sort of floating around the internet fall down is a lack of any real insight, anything that'll sort of turn a creative person's head around and make them think about that moment differently. Yeah. So, and and just adding to, to both. So actually, I'll come back to your metaphor of the, the the football team. For me, I found that the people that have a, a grounded experience enables them to um, bring something to 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 the team, but also we don't want to constrain them. So a defender is there to primarily defend, but can also score goals. It's just that you don't expect them to score many goals. A forward can defend, but that's not primarily their responsibility. I'd love to put that into American sporting analogy, but I get confused, but does that, <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, and, and I think the, the things that you're asking of any given channel is gonna be different today than it will next time out for a different client and and a different audience set very true and 
When I think about this and the conversations we've had with clients, and, and Melissa, you've been in the room for some of those, and Eric, so have you, where that the, the paid media weight, rightly or wrongly, the paid media weight always feels as though that's a foundation for any communications planning discussion. Granted, you're absolutely right, Eric, that it shouldn't be the assume, assumed answer, primary answer. So we've got to be able to find a way, I think, to have the people that we want to be able to talk about best about the role of all communications, all channels, to have an understanding and a, an experience of what the role of paid can be. If anything, to be able to speak the same language as a paid media specialist, but also to be able to understand where its role should be. That point you were saying earlier. Does right. that make sense? Yes. And to let consumers be the be our guide. If we live in a world where consumers get to choose what they watch, when they watch it, what's most interesting to them, then it stands to reason that brands have to be interesting enough to earn that attention, right? The attention economy sort of argument. If we are going down the paid route, paid media route, assuming that we can just bang messages down people's throat, first of all, you're, you're, you're just wrong. You don't have the money to do it. There's no way you can get any kind of decent share of voice. Second of all, uh, you're, you're, there's so many other options for people to pay attention to that, that, that it's, it's, it's a fruitless exercise. So thinking about it from the consumer first point of view, uh, what is interesting to them? How do you earn their attention? How do you do things that are interesting enough to warrant earning their attention? That seems to be the, uh, to be the trick. So starting from the consumer first, now within that context, within the context of what's interesting to these people and their current behavior. Now, what's the role of paid? Like it puts it in a different, it, it puts it in a completely different light, I think, than um, sort of standard issue. Oh, we're going to spend this amount of money on this platform today in return for X amount of impressions. So true. So if I think about that as that's a common mistake that we passionately wish everyone to avoid, the common mistake being thinking about it as a paid media answer first, now what's the question? And your point is that the way you should overcome that is think about it from the customer first, about their needs and their, uh, their needs throughout a journey. What would be two other common mistakes you've come across and how can we solve them? Oh, I think maybe a mistake is... Uh, the journey construct. Ooh, tell me more. Well, I think everyone says, "Oh, journeys, journeys, journeys," and yes, it is a it is a tool to understand what's happening in a consumer's life. There's other tools. A day in the life is not a journey, but it is, or maybe it's a type of journey if you want to argue that. But it's a different tool, and I can imagine you know many others. the The problem with that I have with journeys is. You know, you need to know when and how to use them. But second of all, more importantly, that it is not something that you just fill out, that you assume you have to have marketing effort at every single part of that journey. There are points in that journey where you're going to have an outsized impact, where you're going to have more of a right to win, where you have more of a chance of actually either reaching a consumer or and or changing their behavior. And to go through the process of assessing which points in the journey are more ripe, are more right to focus on than others, 
is, I think, a mistake that or a, a step that gets skipped often. I'm smiling and nodding out because I have, I have a passionate hate for the slides that says we have a 360 plan. Oh my God, it's the worst. Right? <laughs> exactly. I, I once said to a client, the problem with a 360 degree plan is the only people that do 360s are stalkers. And I don't know any brand that wants to be known as a stalker. You just <laughs> have to find the right entry point. And odds what are you don't, ha- you don't have enough money either. You know, your, your budget's not big enough to do the entire journey, even if it were but right it, to do the entire journey. But it looks so good on a circle, on a keynote or PowerPoint uh. slide. <laughs> How about you, Melissa? Are you a passionate defender of 360-degree plans? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Um, and, as, I mean, I think, as you know, John, that we have almost stepped away from the journeys as well. I was going to say that one pain point, I I think, is, there's not always one answer or one strategy for for every channel, right? So so your paid media strategy might be different from your PR strategy, and and that's okay. They don't have to be mirror images of each other, but they have to work together in some way. Yeah, might, um, maybe not not even just okay, but desired. I would I would argue they're fundamentally different. They should work in different ways. I would I would think. Yeah. So I think that sometimes what people think that Eric and I are talking about is a lookalike or like he just said, the example he gave earlier of the Super Bowl spot, like, okay, now every discipline has to stand behind this one idea. Um, And it it just doesn't work like that. It just doesn't always work like that. And it, it shouldn't. The old matching luggage trick. That's Yep, exactly. Exactly. So how do we get people, creatives, account people, even planners at small agencies that don't have your depth of skills and experience and, and, and understanding? What are a couple of tips of what would you suggest that a, a planner in a small agency can do to get his teams or her teams to start thinking more like you? I think uh, a few things. One is... in an Well, I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to make an assumption that at your agency, account planning and connections planning are two separate disciplines. In an ideal world, both of those processes are done at the same time together up front because it's about understanding the consumer, understanding the the insights behind what drives their behavior and what drives their motivations, and it's, a, it's the same process with different outputs. One is a creative brief, which is about how the brand should come to life through creative. And the other is about once we have a big idea, how does it start to manifest in different ways to this, this audience in a way that's compelling and interesting and behavior changing to them. But the, the understanding of the consumer is a single way in. So step one to me is forge an alliance with the account planning people and move the connections planning process to before creative development, not after it. Or to be, to be more accurate, it's both before and after because a good creative idea is going to change the nature of your comms plan or should um, unless it's uh, you know the old school – Here's a proposition and a tagline, and we're just going to run that tagline with as much media weight as we can put behind it, like that sort of old school bang it down their throats Mm -hmm. kind of idea. 
a real creative idea impacts the communications plan and vice versa. And that sort of push-pull, the, the back-and-forthing between you and the account planner up front, understanding the consumer, and then after the creative idea is developed, the push-and-pull between the comms planner and the creative team, getting it right, getting the tactics right, getting the expression of the idea right, seems to be um, a good first step. Yeah, got it. So listen, tell me if this this fits with your, your thinking. One of the things that I we try and do is we try and make sure that actually not only are the um, connection specialists and the account planner working together to the brief, but also I want the connection specialists and the creatives to work together from the brief. Right. In the ideal world, right? So to yeah. try and avoid the linearity of now we have an idea, think about the right channels for it. And I think that should, if we can get, if we can get the channel and the creative and the strategy all as close and tight together within brief, to the brief and then from the brief, surely it's got to help us. But that assumes that your creative brief has certain things in it that a connections planner can use. So, True. so yeah, I, th yeah. I think it's worth taking a look at. There's the format of the creative brief. I think has shifted over since the inception of the account planning discipline when in the 80s, I guess, here in the States. Uh, and it used to be very proposition-led. And I've seen a handful of formats in recent years that talk more about consumer behavior and talk about how to engage with somebody, not just what to say to them. Sort of the content and the context if both of those things are present and there's a point of view in the creative brief up front, then yes, I totally agree with you. And if it's just an old school, here's the proposition, then it's not going to work. It's not going to pan out. So that's a really good tip for any of us listening in and thinking about would be, how do we brief our teams today? Maybe a barrier to actually achieving what we're all looking for about understanding the role of channels. It might be worth uh, digging up a few examples yeah. of what a, a a good creative brief might look like. I'm I'm sure I can dig out a few. I can certainly share the the version that Dirt uses. Uh, I would love to, and if uh, if so, then we'll link it to this podcast so we can share that back out. That'd be great, Eric. How about you, Melissa? Anything to add to this? Um, just going back to what what can you do at a small agency? I was thinking back to um, myself, and aside from the obvious of you know, reading and staying curious. Um, I always used to ask to just be in meetings and to be a fly on the wall. And I think I really learned that through, you know, when I worked at Kirschenbaum, the wonderful and amazing creative director, Rob Seekins would allow a little 24 year old media planner to sit in on creative meetings, which was one of the greatest gifts um, that anybody could have given me. And it showed me that you can ask to sit in and listen on things that are maybe outside of your discipline. And it just helps to open your eyes and, and see the bigger picture. So even, um, you know, if you're working with a media agency, ask if you can go over there and, and sit in on a few of their meetings and, and just listen to what other disciplines are challenged with and how they're trying to solve problems. That's great, guys. Honestly, a really couple of simple but really powerful tips about perhaps we need to change our structure in terms of think about the brief format itself and process. And the other one, that, Melissa, that you just talked about, which is the, the attitude. 
attitude and, and behavior will, will force change as well. So one final question. When we roll up everything we've been talking about now, who in the world today, which brands do you think are doing it well? Why? And how can you tell? Melissa. I think that it's really easy to look at some of the newer brands in the market and see how they're doing things that are different from maybe their competitors who are older brands. So um, last night I received a package from a makeup company called Glossier. And if you're a woman, you probably have heard of Glossier. It was founded by a woman named Emily Weiss who sought to disrupt a really competitive industry, the beauty and, and makeup industry. And one of the interesting things about Glossier is every single touch point, um, much like an Apple, every touch point that you receive from them, whether it's the email that your package is on its way, when you open the package itself, they now have a retail experience um, down in Soho. Everything speaks the same language and has the same aesthetic and and the same point of view about being yourself and, and being a little bit disruptive. So I can tell how much thought is put into every single point of communication. Uh, that's a great example. They're they're an awesome brand for sure. I'm I'm not entirely convinced that you can tell from the outside whether there's a good comms plan behind it or not. You can certainly tell, like like you say, Melissa, the reaction that you have to the feeling of a brand that that it feels cohesive and it feels good. But maybe that's by accident, or maybe it's just a strong founder's culture, or maybe it's a good comms plan, or maybe you don't need a comms plan if you have the first two. I don't know. I think there's there's maybe a lot of a lot of answers to the Glossier example. The um, sort of thing that leaps immediately to mind, well, a couple of them. I'm not sure these are perfect examples of comms plans, but in terms of getting marketing right in 2019, Lil Nas X with Old Town Road and his different iterations of that have so clearly tapped into popular culture and 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 captured my imagination, at least. Uh, I think that is a little bit comms plan, you know, understanding the the direction culture is going and tapping into it and, and latching yourself onto it and co-opting it. Sort of in that vein, the Bud Light work in the World Series recently, the guy who didn't drop his Bud Lights when the ball hit him in the chest. Like, uh-huh, that's amazing. Uh-huh. And to turn that around and make a 15-second spot the next day on the next uh, game of the World Series is understanding the time and place, making content that is exactly right for that time and place, latching onto uh, a cultural zeitgeist as it happens. Like, it might even be better than the sort of classic example of Oreo's Dunk in the Dark because that was planned ahead of time. And this one is recognizing the moment that they're in Bud Light did and and reacting to it and being in that moment being fully in that moment with their marketing like that's really impressive that's a cool way of thinking about it and there's that that agility and, and speed of, of thought and action that, that stands out you, you know what's interesting is I think when I, when I was thinking of an answer to the question I just raised myself it's really subjective because it's really personal both your example, Eric, and, and yours, Melissa, and, and mine, I, I go to, you know, it's an old stable, but I love it as an example of, of REI, all the way back to the origination of, of Opt Outside, of 
an idea that was founded and um, grounded in a fundamental belief of the brand that they then brought alive of, you know, the, the archetype of shop, shopper marketing is closing your store for purpose. And funny enough now, when I, I look at it as, as a consumer, I look at it now and I feel, it starts to feel a little tainted when I'm on my Insta hashtag opt outside and it's essentially, it's a permanent fashion show, not the primary purpose of being. So it, I wonder how long it's got left to live mm. as, an, as an idea, but I love that as an intent of it goes all the way back to the fundamental role of brand to be a, a central organizing principle of business, right. which then impacted their role of channel and how they brought it alive. Yeah, yeah. so the idea came first, right? Yeah. I've, I've actually heard two stories. I've heard one story that the idea came first, which led to the action of closing, and I heard another, um, which was actually the action already been taken, that REI had made a decision, a business decision, they were going to close to be true to their purpose. And what the agency did was a fantastic way to turn that into opt outside, mm. the articulation of, of the message. I think both are half true and it ends up with a great result. But it just goes to underscore the point that I was trying to make earlier, which is a comms plan, a, a connections planner, and a connections plan is not taking something that somebody has given you, a tagline, a piece of creative, and executing it and putting it out into the world. It is not that. It, the best connections plans are the push and pull between the account planners and the creative teams. And it's hard to tell where one starts and the other stops. Or to go back to the Glossier example, the, uh, the, the, the founder and the vision of the founder and how that gets brought to life is that is that a founder's vision or is it a great comms plan or like it kind of doesn't matter it's it is all of those things and and the sort of big mush of it is probably uh, a signal of success and you know as you just said that it made me start to think about this that actually the better description for what we've just spent an hour talking about is what you just said eric and connections connections more important than communication because it forces us to think about the the as you just said the both the two parts to it, the role of customer as well as brand, the role of the creative as well as the media, the role of um, how and where and why we need to connect. Here, here. <laughs> On that happy note, I'm rolling up. This has been a, a really exciting, uh, really great discussion for me. Thank you so much for both of you, Melissa and Eric, for spending the time uh, helping shape. Um, how we should be thinking better about the role of all forms of connections, the challenges we have, but also some really good pointers for what we can do better. So I thank you both. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. So good to hear your voice, Melissa. It's been a little while. You too. I know you too, Eric. Then get that coffee soon. Yeah, no doubt. Let's do it. See? More connections. More connections. (laughs) (laughs) I'll see you guys.